This episode of Pod Cemetery is brought to you by the Thunderbolt Flying Model Rocket Set. It's the best. Hello, my name is Chris. My name is Kelsey. And this is Pod Cemetery, where we dissect horror movies like the rotting corpses that they are. It's a listener recommendation week with 1987's The Gate and 2014's The Guest. Kelsey, who recommended these movies to us? Tron 1686. Thank you very much, Tron. This was a great week. This was a really good week. Uh, It could also be described, as Kelsey pointed out, as... Unintentionally invited guests week. It could be... Movies go crazy in the last third. (laughs) Yes. It's also the G week. Yeah. Because both movies are the gate and the guest. But more importantly, it's Tron's listener recommendation week. So thank you very much. Really appreciate it. These were good picks. Uh, And we're excited about them. But before we get to discussing these movies, Kelsey, how do we start the show? Trivial Pursuit Horror Edition. Give me what you got. Both of these are so fucking easy. It's not fair. Okay. When the dance is canceled in the present day in My Bloody Valentine from 1981, where do the teenagers decide to hold their own party? At the mines. That's correct. Don't they change it in the new one, though? Well, they're... Both, like, at, like, the rec center or whatever that's that's kind of at the mines, and then people go into the mines. I think that's the same for both of them. Okay. I don't know, though. It's been too long since we've seen those movies. Why don't you go back and listen to that episode and let us know? <laughs> <laughs> All right, Kelsey. Yeah. Tell me if I've done this one before. Okay. What E.T. the Extraterrestrial 1982 actor also appeared... In Ouija, Origin of Evil, 2016. I don't know his name. It's the kid who played Elliot. Yes, Henry Thomas. He was in Ouija, Origin of Evil. He was also famously in The Haunting of Hill House. So, did I get it right? Did I get the title right? Yes. Okay. (laughs) All right. Up next is our first movie, 1987's The Gate, directed by Tibor to catch... Written by Michael Nankin and starring Stephen Dorff, Krista Denton, and Lewis Tripp. Listen, Stephen Dorff is a small guy. <laughs> you might know him more recently from the third season of True Detective. He plays one of the two main characters when he did a very good job. Mm -hmm. He's like in his late 40s or something like that, or his mid-40s, and he ended up playing... Like a 60-something-year-old man pretty pretty well. He also played a 20-something-year-old man yeah. pretty well. <laughs> so uh, he's also the motherfucker trying to ice skate uphill <laughs> in Blade. Some motherfuckers are always trying to ice skate uphill. <laughs> so it's interesting to see him as a young boy like this and just how large his head is and how small his body is. <laughs> he's a cute little kid. <laughs> That's what attracts us to babies is their enlarged facial features. Okay. It's the it's the the trigger that makes us want to protect them and think they're cute. It's also what makes us like certain animals. <laughs> anyway, 
What is the gate about? Two best friends accidentally open a gate to another world and... Not to another world. Oh, to hell. To hell. And demons come out. Yeah, demons who used to rule the world. Yeah, see, there's a comment about that (laughs) a little bit later on. The movie is free with commercials on Tubi TV. You can buy it for eight bucks on iTunes, though. It's not expensive. I think that's what I ended up doing. Should people watch the movie or not? Yes. Yeah. Never seen it before. I had never seen it. No. So thank you, Tron, for exposing us to this movie. It's awesome. Uh, It was a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah, I would recommend it. It manages to, you know, be about wholesome kid stuff, but interesting still at the same time. Yeah, I'm not going to say it's like one of those kids movies that's really like, really actually for adults. It's not, but it does a really good job of not making it feel immature and childish. Yeah, and even the special effects that probably shouldn't have been used at the time, like it was too soon for some special effects and too late for others, they still managed to be, like, really fucking effective. There are some great effect shots in this movie. Mm-hmm. Like, really good. Yeah, so there's Chris kind of something had to show me. Chris had to show me how forced perspective works because of this movie. Yeah. Uh-huh. Because I thought the demons were... Stop motion? Um, Were stop motion, like, little clay figures. Not so. No, they're dudes in little rubber suits shot from a really high angle. And that angle was, like, mimicked in the real scale. And so when they composited those shots, it made it look like they were really there. And, you know, it's not an uncommon technique, but they did it really, really well here, even though you could see some of the compositing lines. Those little mini demons are neat They're really cool. I like them a lot. (laughs) Anyway, yeah, you should absolutely watch this. But you could take our advice or leave it. When we get back, we will talk about 1987's The Gate. There is a passageway to the most evil place you can imagine. A gate behind which the demons wait to take back what was once theirs. And now... Someone has opened the gate. You got demons. Ah! I mean, you guys were serious about that demon stuff? They have opened the gate. Pray it's not too late. Starts Friday at a selected theater near you. Check your local listings. All right, Kelsey, can you get us started? How does the gate begin? The gate begins with a nightmare sequence. Yes. Of a little boy, Stephen Dorff, riding on his bike to his home. And this looks like every 80s suburbia. Like, I mean, like, yeah. it, it looked like the opening to Poltergeist or the opening to E.T. Like, just so 80s yeah. suburbia. Uh-huh. <laughs> and he rides his bike in and, like... It's all alone. He can can hear some giggling and he's really afraid and there's some distorted voices talking and there's just food left out and the TV is on and then it's nighttime and then there's a storm and then, ah! Well, he's in his treehouse at the end. It gets struck by lightning and starts to fall over while he's in the treehouse, which just imagining that would be terrifying as a kid. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then, yeah, he wakes up and we see what triggered that part of the dream 
and probably the storm part too, is there's loud machinery in his backyard tearing out an old rotten tree. Which also has his tree house in it, so that's yeah, kind of shitty. Uh-huh. But when they're picking up the tree, two little balls fall out. <laughs> and when you open them up, they are geodes. There were two? Mm-hmm. I thought there was just one. The big one comes later. Oh, okay. When it first pops out, there's yeah. two tiny geodes. Uh-huh. The implication here is that a geode does come from lightning. So geodes come from little pockets within actual rock, whether it's volcanic rock or uh, sedimentary rock, and there's like um, mud inside the rock, or there's an air bubble, or animals lived in there or whatever. The outer shell of that space hardens, but there's still like moisture inside of there. And moisture forms and then evaporates and forms and then evaporates. It leaves behind all the minerals that's inside of it. And that that's what forms those crystalline structures on the inside. It's kind of the same thing that forms on your shower head, but obviously not the same water and over millions of years. <laughs> he shows it to his best friend. Terry, played by Lewis Tripp. This is the one and only thing he has ever been credited with. At Which least is surprising because he wasn't bad for a kid actor. No, he wasn't, actually. I liked him a lot. He yeah. was very interesting. He is the heavy metal kid. He is a... He's the red-headed, glasses-wearing metalhead. Yes. It's awesome. He's a single child. These kids really do exist. Yeah. <laughs> He's an only child uh, whose mother passed away recently and... I think from cancer. And the dad thinks that... You know, his behavior is his way of dealing with that. That's you're talking about Stephen Dorff's dad. We yeah. never see no Trip's dad. His dad uh, is always gone. Terry's on dad business. is always gone. Yeah, uh-huh. and we learn that only at one point through the movie when we see the house is a mess and there's a note that says "gone on business." That's what they're trying to say is like that kind of environment creates metal kids, and it's like nah, metal kids come from everywhere. <laughs> uh, when we first see him, he has a jacket on and. He has a back patch of the band Venom. Which is a real band. It's a real band, yes. Later on, for the rest of the movie, he wears a denim vest that has a back patch of the Killer Dwarfs. He also wears a Masters of the Universe (laughs) t-shirt. He's my kind of kid. (laughs) So Terry tells him geodes are worth a lot of money. We should look and see if there's maybe more. Even though Steven Dorff is like, my dad will kill me. They've already covered it all up, the big hole. Mm-hmm. He's like, we gotta look, we gotta see. So they start digging, which is, of course, how they open the gate initially. But that doesn't really mean much, because in order to let them out, you have to do all sorts of other things. But they find that giant geode at this point. They find one huge geode. And and Terry makes the comment about how they don't get that big. That's absolutely not true. They do get that big. You've seen them before. They exist. They can be, like, feet tall. They get huge. The ones you're used to seeing are those small little, maybe the size of two of your fists or something like that. But they definitely get bigger than that. And those are the ones that can cost, like, thousands of dollars. Glenn also gets a splinter and starts bleeding, and he bleeds directly into the hole. Meanwhile, there's this whole, like, little storyline going on that Steven Dorff's character loves rockets. Like, a lot. Yes, like, a lot. (laughs) 
Oh, that's the other theme of this week. These are two movies that were covered in Red Letter Media's review uh, show that they have. And we watched the movies. We made our notes. We did all that. And then we decided to watch the show. And I'm a little bit pissed off that so many of the things that I swear to God I already had written down, Kelsey can vouch for me, they talk about on the show. So it's good to know that at least I'm on a track that somebody else has thought of already. And I'm not just an idiot. But... (laughs) I'll point those out when I get to them. <laughs> He's not allowed to do the rockets without supervision because he apparently caught their roof on fire. Yes, and we see the little burned patch. It's a nice little, yeah. What do you need her for anyway? I mean, what's the big deal? Well, ever since I burnt a hole on the roof, my dad says I can't launch any of my rockets without supervision. Hey, I'll supervise. That supervision could be his sister, but his sister's starting to grow up. Yes. And that was something that they used to bond over. She goes by Al, but she likes to go by Alexandra now. Because she's a young woman. Yes. And and she throws out a lot of her stuff, including one of the rockets that she has. And well, when because he asks, according to her, it's like, that thing has been sitting in my room for three months. You never wanted to get around to it. Now you mm-hmm. do. It's hurry. I already got rid of it. But this is being set up as like a key bonding area for their brother-sister relationship are these rockets that he's obsessed with and she facilitates, right? But she's throwing one away and he tries to salvage it, but he can't because it got too wet in the trash and so he can't actually salvage it. And he doesn't know what happened to the big one. What's it called? The Thunderbolt. The Thunderbolt. And she's like, whatever, I don't know where it is. Ow, wait! What about the Thunderbolt? Just forget about the Thunderbolt. It's gone! But she definitely does know where it is. We find out later it's stored in her closet. And in the meantime, out of this hole that they have dug, lots of moths are coming out. Yeah. They have a giant light thing that zaps them. Yeah, so clearly that's clearly that's not going to be like a why are all these moths suddenly here cuz clearly they're used to it. Yeah. The friend, the redheaded friend grabs some and puts them into a jar and asks how long do you think they can last without air? And Stephen Dorff says that's cruel, it which is. it really fucking is. Yeah. How long do you think they can live without air? Hey man, that's cruel. Come on. It's neat. Like, killing bugs is one thing, is but, it? like, torturing them is a completely <laughs> different thing. I had a friend who, <laughs> there was this girl who lived next door to me. She's also the reason why, like, the first time I ever stole something from a store was with her, Candy. She would also do this thing where she would take Japanese beetles and catch them and then tie strings to their legs and be like fly them around like a kite they would be able to get enough effort out to where they would rip their legs, their legs off. would just rip off it's like that's fucked at the time i was like I'm, something makes me uncomfortable about this like i didn't know what it was i never did it myself but she she did and she would do that with us me and my brother but like it always made me a little uncomfortable it's <laughs> fucked yeah but Steven Dorf ends up keeping it, so I assume he must have poked holes in it. Yeah, we don't know exactly what he did. But they there are moths in a jar, and they stay there for days. Yes, and he will use them a lot throughout the movie. The parents are going on a trip for like three days, and they're really thinking we should probably get a babysitter. Now, 
I understand that they're, they're, the reason is because, well, clearly we can't fucking trust you. You almost set our house on fire. Yeah. <laughs> but the sister's almost 16. She says uh-huh. this. I was babysitting at like 12. <laughs> yeah, my my brother was watching me when he was like 10 or 11, I think. We were home alone together. So I was like seven or eight and he was 10. I guess maybe because it's going to be for multiple days, and if she's not 16, then she can't actually drive. Yeah. It's also the 80s, though, and rules in the 80s were a lot more lax than they are now, like, especially even earlier than that, where, you know, you just say, bye, kids, have fun, go play in a quarry somewhere, and then just be home before dinner, you know, like, you could do that before. Now... Thinking of just letting your kid go off and having no idea where your tiny little kid is on their bike is nuts. Well, we don't have to worry about that anymore as we have cell phones. As much, but still. Like, knowing where your kid is at all times is, like, a key part of, like, raising kids now, and it wasn't at all back then. That seems bizarre to me. Even if I had kids in this day and age, I would still be like, go and have fun. Yeah. Here's a burner phone. Call me if anything bad happens. (laughs) If I call, you better fucking answer. Yeah. Watch those uh, bars. You run out of service. You best get to a place where you have service. uh Anyway, so they end up letting the the sister take care of him. And the last thing they say, of course, is no parties. This is a classic saying no parties cut to... A party. Yes. And this is the most 80... I think I've said this a couple of times from these movies that we've watched but this is such an 80s party i wrote that too this is a very 80s party. i would die to go to a party like this uh-huh oh it was so glorious oh the outfit she's wearing is awful and her hair is all crimped and i love it yep and she of course you know isn't actually enjoying herself because you find out as a teenager oh being a host and inviting all these kids means I have responsibilities. Means yeah. I have uh-huh. to take care of everything because these kids don't give a fuck about my house. Right. Terry and Glenn are hanging out. I don't think we said Stephen Dorff's name is Glenn. They're hanging out upstairs and they're trying to break open the geode. And they finally do almost accidentally when Glenn just whacks on it with a hammer and it cracks open. And it makes some kind of marks on like, it's not an Etch-a-Sketch, but... It's one of those things where you Yeah, it's one of those sheets of paper on a on a board. I can't remember what it is. It's almost like it's it's like carbon whatever. Yeah. yeah. So you write on it and you can and then you just lift up the sheet and put it back down and, and the writing's gone and you do it over and over again. And it makes some kind of marks on there and they read the words out loud. Look, I need some kind of marks. It's words. What's it say? It's weird. Aka Kuto. I swear it's like Niktu Barata, not Yeah. <laughs> Klatu Barata Niktu, yeah. Klatu Barata <laughs> We still haven't seen that movie for this show. Klatu Barata Niktu. yeah. Okay. Everything's cool. I said the word. I did. So they're bored and they decide to go downstairs and while they're doing that, this dude is telling a scary story. Uh-huh. I mean, okay, I didn't go to a lot of parties in high school. I think I might have gone to, like, I went to a few in my senior year 
But, like, other than that, my parties were very, like, the parents were right fucking there, you know? Uh-huh. But, like, actual, like, no parents there. People are drinking. Not until my senior year. I never once was at a party where everybody sat down to listen to a spooky story. Yeah. And then they do, like, the classic sleepover, light as a feather, stiff as a board thing, but with a chair, which I've seen done as well. One of the girls is like, oh, I'm the one that's attuned to psychic phenomena. And... They try it on somebody, but they can't do it. There's like four people on one 16-year-old, and they can't get it to work. And so they're like, Glenn. He's tiny. You're tiny. Get over here. But we'll do it with two people since he's so small. And they do, and they 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 do their mantra thing, and they lift him up. But then he keeps going up, 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 and he actually, like, floats into the air and gets tossed against the wall. And, and he, he breaks, like, light bulbs and stuff yeah, like that. And he's freaked out. And he starts crying. Yeah, he starts crying, which, like, Jesus Christ, could you imagine? If you're that age yeah. and that would happen to you, that'd be really scary. The teenagers are like, whoa, what was that about? And that's kind of it. The one girl's like, I guess I won't do that again. And then, like, let's not talk about how we actually levitated somebody. So the sister, of course, runs up after her brother. They talk for a little bit, but then they end up going uh, to sleep. And there are a few dreamlike scenarios. And this is why... I don't always believe that somebody is dreaming when I'm like, what is going on? And you're like, it's a dream sequence, obviously. And I'm like, well, okay, I'm not an idiot. I know it can be a dream sequence, but what if it's not? This is one of those things. So Glenn has his own dream about something. I don't quite remember what it was, but Terry goes outside on the balcony and he sees the front door open and there's like a light coming from outside and some smog and it's his mom who's passed away. Well, before that, I really loved how determined the kid was to not be afraid. Yeah. Every little thing was was scaring him, but he just kept pushing himself. I loved that. And then, yeah, and then he ends up seeing his mom. And so she wants to see him and hold him and they kind of dance a little bit, you know, like slow dance, like they're holding each other and they're spinning and stuff. And then the perspective changes, the camera shot changes, and then Terry's just holding the dog. Which we haven't mentioned. They have a shaggy dog. They have a shaggy dog named Angus, who, according to them, is 97 years old. Now, in traditional counting, that's the seven to one calculation, just shy of 14 years. Modern calculations, how we know that at different times in the dog's life, they age at different rates. That would put the dog, if he was almost 14, dog would be like 76 or 86. 97 in modern counting, it would be like 16 or something like that, or even older. Like very, very elderly dog. Um, It all depends on the weight, though. But in any case... Terry kind of snaps out of it and sees that he's holding this dog, which appears to be lifeless, and he drops it, (laughs) and it certainly is dead at that point. Whether it died because he dropped it or is already dead, it's not clear. Terry does apologize, but something weird is going on, and Glenn knows it, and they're very sad to find Angus downstairs dead. Al, the sister, Glenn, Stephen Dorff, and Terry. They're all very sad to see the dog die what happens to the dog kelsey well the dog dies and the sister lies and says that she's taking care of it she is not taking care of it and she 
is going to, but her friends want her to go and hang out at the mall. And so she's like, well, what am I going to do about the dog? And this guy is like, I'll take care of it. I'll take it to the shelter. They go to the shelter. It's closed. He comes back and puts the dog in the conveniently located hole in the back of their (laughs) backyard. Dog winds up being a sacrifice. Yes. Yes, which is one of the things needed. These things are starting to tick off, right? Like they open the geode. They read the text. They provide blood, they give a sacrifice, and that kind of opens the gate to hell in order for these little demons to come through. We're setting up the premise here, and they find out later, and we'll get to how they find out, that the big bad demon can't come out until they complete the ritual, which includes two human sacrifices. It's around here that we see Terry in his room. And he has a rainbow sheet that he that he's thrown over his head, and he's singing along. I love this scene to a song that was made specially for the movie. <laughs> uh, a, there's this like monologue portion of the song all about the old gods, and it's hilarious. In a time before the earth, before the sun, and before the light of the stars, when all was darkness and chaos, the old gods. The forgotten gods ruled the darkness. But what was theirs now belongs to the world of light and substance. And the old gods, the rightful masters, are jealous, watching mankind with a hatred that is as boundless as the stars, with plans for the destruction of man that are beyond imagining. It's awesome. It's really good. It's got a super uh, Cabin in the Woods feel with the old gods being under there that want to yeah, take back the uh-huh. world that's been taken from them. Totally. I, I wrote down there seems to be some backmasking. I'll have to figure it out. Backmasking is just when they had audio, speech, music played backwards. And if you spun the record backwards, you could hear it front ways. And I was like, okay, well, when I edit this episode, I'll include what it actually is backwards. Oh, they do it in the movie. You don't need to worry about it. What he's saying is, be gone, be gone, be gone. Thou art hideous, filth-eating, unspeakable. What's this? The album. Backwards. Tells you how to close the gate. What Terry realizes is that this band is singing about the gate to hell opening and singing about the requirements to open the gate and also the requirements to shut the gate. And he goes to the album insert, which has contents from what they call the black book. Just like the Necronomicon. Yes. And it has the whole, it has all of like, hey, here's the demon. This is where the geode is. And they point out like all this stuff. And levitation also needs to have been conducted. Yeah. So Terry like freaks out and he shows this to Glenn. He's like, oh my God, we opened a gate to hell. All the things that have been happening have been opening this gate to hell. And that's why I thought I saw my mom and I ended up seeing your dog. It's around this time that the sister's friends come over and they really want her to go out with them. They seem to just hate her little brother. Just hate him. And they're all being really shitty to him. I'm pretty sure that the sister's kind of being shitty too. She's being a little shitty, yeah. to, To get back at them... He he looks at the only guy in the room and he goes, Just shut up. Hey. 
and then runs away. This movie has the F word, the one that we don't like saying on the show, twice in it, actually, including one time when the two kids are looking for the Thunderbolt in Al's closet and Al and her two sister friends find them. Al's like, what are you doing in here? And one of the sisters says, Probably f***ing off. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Yeah. It was the 80s, man. It was definitely the 80s. It was 80s. definitely the 80s. It's a little uncomfortable. Totally acceptable for the time. To our great shame. A few things happen. Al leaves with her friends. The dog thing happens where Angus is dropped into the into the gate. And Terry convinces Glenn that they need to read this thing he shows him the audio playing backwards and says, we need to read this to the hold to get it shut. And they do, and they open this <laughs> literal gate that they have on top of it, and it's just dirt. And I'm like, oh, all right. I guess it worked. Fine. Cool. And they think that it worked easily because they think that the sacrifice was never finished. Yes, exactly. The they don't know that the dog went in the hole already. Yes. Mm -hmm. So Al ends up coming back. She's not gone for long. She ends up coming back. Because she spent all her money. Yes. And she's like, what? You already spent all your money? She was going to go to the mall. And he's like, she's like, yeah. And she reveals what she spent her money on. It was a new rocket for Glenn. Aww. Which is super sweet. She felt really guilty about leaving him alone when and he didn't want to. being a shitty friend. Yeah. After their dog fucking died. Yeah, and Glenn was upset, and she convinced him not to call their parents, and Glenn was obviously really upset. It's her little brother, and she's That's like, why the kids were making fun of him, and that's why he called that kid. Yes. The yeah. F word. Totally. So, all three of them are home. This is the moth scene which has some real bad compositing because you try to take tiny little moths and cut them out of the film that they're on and put it on top of this one. It they're all out of focus and there's hard lines. Of something wicked this way comes with the spiders, with the tarantulas. I can't think of what that looks like. Huh. But it looks like two-dimensional object on in a three-dimensional world and it looks really bad. It's probably the worst effect in the movie, which is unfortunate. Terry wakes up and Angus is in his bed, which is really fucking weird. Super godfather. Yes. When all three of them are in there to try to find out what, what happened to Terry, why he screamed, these arms come out and they grab Al by her legs and start to pull her under the bed. And the boys manage to prevent her from getting dragged down to hell. They try to run outside and when they do, what do they find? His parents, and he's so excited to see them. And the dad gives him a big hug and picks him up, but then... Grabs him by the neck and says, you've been a bad boy, you've or whatever he said. Yeah, you've, you've been bad. You've been bad. And he starts to, like, choke him. And Glenn tries to fight back and has his hands in his face. And then all of a sudden, his fingers just dip into the dad's face. And it just leaks this white fluid. This is one of the best effects in the movie. It's really good. Not the best. We'll get to what that is. 
the dad's face just like caves in and the mom just has this maniacal laugh. This is when the turn happens. Yes. This is when all of a sudden a whole lot of crazy shit starts to happen. And then the dad's head falls off and Glenn drops down to back down to the ground. The head flops onto the ground in this gooey mess. It looks fantastic. And Glenn looks at his fingers and they're all covered with this green goo, which is a little inconsistent, but I'm okay with that. They run back inside away from the parents who are never seen again the entire rest of the movie. We hear them. Right. But like the parents are a non-factor for the rest of the movie, basically. Al's going to go outside in the backyard to see if it's safe to go out the back way. And when she goes, they see all the little demons for the first time. We're going to just call them little demons. These are the guys that are just dudes in rubber suits. They cut out like every other frame of footage. So it looks like they're moving really fast and janky. Like a silent film or something like that. Like one of those really old era. Yeah. Or like their stop motion. Right. She runs back inside and they slam the door and and it catches one of the little demon's arms. And this is a little prelude to a better effect that comes later. The arm falls off. It hits the ground. And these little claymation worms all burst into these little worms. And then they all skitter away underneath the door. Very Night of the Creeps. Yes, but very the way it, the way it transforms, it's very cool. it's very cool. But that sets up an even bigger effect that happens later. So they instead go downstairs to the basement where they find the black book, but it bursts into flames, and they just cannot use it anymore. So push kind of has come to shove now, and they they have to use something else. And if they need to close a hole to hell, they do it with. The Bible. We didn't even say. Two of Al's friends are there, the Lee sisters, which we mentioned earlier. They're still there that night. They know the Bible because they went to Bible camp, I guess, or Sunday school or something. So they know it really well. And they end up grabbing some pieces of Psalms that they can read outside to close the hole. And while they're trying to do that, there's wind and lightning and the earth shakes and they're trying to read it. So it's it seems obvious that it's working. But in the process, Terry falls into the hole. And all the little demons, of course, try to grab him. They start biting him. He's able to hit several of them off of him and he throws several of them off of him. This is around the time when I wrote, this is really reminding me of Little Soldiers. Yeah. Oh, yeah, totally. That 90s movie? They're about that size, yeah. Felt a lot like that. He actually ends up- small soldiers. Small soldiers. Yeah. uh He ends up actually stomping one to death. Kind of. doesn't really look very real because- You can tell that nothing is breaking when he hits the person. Yeah, well, I mean, the demon, I was thinking about that, and they kind of mentioned it in Red Letter Media's review of it. He stomps on one, and they've got the speed super cranked down, and it just, like, starts, like, freaking out. Yeah, it's so bizarre, because, like, he stomps on it, and you expect him to, like, squish it or something, and, like, I think of, like, a a Gremlins-type scene, where it's like, oh, here's the gross part. But he doesn't squish him. He just makes him flip out. Yeah. He steps on it, and you can, you're right, tell he's not putting too much pressure on it and nothing breaks. But then again, it is a demon. It's not going to be that effectively squished. It's made up of claymation worms, actually. So it's very weird. But instead of squishing, which would have been very unrealistic because it's a demon and you can just step on it and that's all you got to do. No, but it freaks out. He's trying to climb out. 
Glenn starts putting dirt into the hole when his friend is still in there. Yeah, and he's trying to read from the Bible still. Meanwhile, the Lee sisters have hid. Uh, and it's going to close on his friend, but he doesn't do that on purpose. What he's trying to do is he's trying to do both at the same time. So as soon as Terry gets out, the gate will be closed. And he throws down part of his swing that used to be attached to the tree. And he throws it down there and Terry's climbing up and they're trying to close it behind him. At that point, they realize they've run out of like psalms to say or whatever. So he just hands in the Bible. He's like, read something. And he starts to say, in the beginning, it took God <laughs> seven days. And he's like, shit, and just throws the Bible <laughs> in it. And, and that does it a, closes. It does look like the, the, the hole's closed again. But this isn't the first time it's looked like it's closed and wasn't really. And we already know it's not closed because the movie is not over yet. Right. You can tell when a movie is supposed to be in its uh, denouement, but there's still kind of too much going on. This isn't appropriate fodder for the falling action of a story. There's too much still to get done. So, oh, no, the action's not over. We haven't had our climax yet. That wasn't the climax. They find the girls afraid in the closet. They've got garlic <laughs> strung around their necks just because they don't know what to expect. I thought for sure, and I'm glad it kind of averted this, I thought for sure that the Lee sisters were going to be the two human sacrifices. So did I. Because it was very conveniently set up that way. Mm-hmm. But instead, some boys, boys come over. <laughs> and scare the shit out of everybody. Because the Lee sisters invited them over, and Al's like, Fuck this. Yeah, I've had enough surprises for one night. And she tells the sisters, fine, just go with the boys. Just leave. I want you mm-hmm. out of here anyway. And the Lee sisters just leave, knowing yes. that all this weird shit was happening. They go inside, and they're watching TV. And I swear they're watching Cannibal Holocaust. Yeah, I couldn't quite make out what was going on. It looked like Cannibal Holocaust. Quest for Fire, 1981 is the only thing it has listed here that that's featured in it. It's literally the quest for fire. It's a bunch of pre-human individuals discovering fire. Well, that would make sense, but it it looked a lot like Cannibal Holocaust. Ron Perlman's in that movie. We haven't explained this, but earlier in the film, Stephen Dorff told his dad that his friend told him about a workman who was killed accidentally while building the house and then was just boarded up inside the walls. Right, so they wouldn't have to, like, explain or face consequences or anything like that. They just board him up in the walls and build over him. He just full-on comes out of the wall. He's like a zombie. He looks like a zombie straight out of Night of the Creeps. And he grabs Terry. And Terry gets pulled into hell and Glenn, again. Yes, and Poor Glenn Terry. is too scared. Yeah, he is. He's too much of a little bitch to go and try and help his friend. And he doesn't get up the nerve until it's really, really close. And he knows it's his only option. And he doesn't make it in time. He slams into the completely closed wall. And Terry's been pulled into hell. So that is our first human sacrifice. Yeah, upstairs, right after that, Al is looking in the mirror at how like dirty she is and everything. And she's trying to clean up. We've noticed that she's approaching the age where she is caring a lot about her appearance and how she looks. She's been preening in front of the mirror earlier in this movie, but this time Phantom of the Opera style, she sees the workman in the mirror. Mm -hmm. And when Glenn comes upstairs after Terry got kidnapped, the workman comes crashing through the mirror. They fight against it. 
Al throws her stereo at him and he just kind of wobbles and then falls forward. Mm -hmm. And this, I think, is the best effect in the movie. I don't know if you agree. You might think something else is maybe the big dude later, but he tips forward and he falls to the ground. And as soon as he hits the ground, he bursts into a bunch of those little demons, which looked incredible. Like it doesn't look real, but it looks uncanny in that way that just really unnerves you. It just disassembles immediately into a bunch of these little demons. It happens so quickly It doesn't look like a morph, and it happens slow enough that it doesn't look like a bad cut. Like, it, he just bursts into these little demons, and they start attacking them again. Earlier, we were told that Glenn's father has a gun. So Glenn goes to get that gun, and out pops Terry. And he actually made me jump. I think I even screamed when it happened. Yeah. It, It came out of nowhere. I was not expecting it. And he looks, there's another movie that he looks a lot like, and of course I can't think of it. It's not like people dark under the stairs. The eyes and- yeah, it's not people under the stairs, but something about the way he looks reminded me of another movie, and I can't think of what it is now. He ends up, like, biting yeah, Glenn, which on is the also hand. really scary. Yes, and Al sees what's happened and has to free her brother. And she does that by stabbing Terry in the eye with a Barbie leg. (laughs) Yes. And I think she's desperate to rescue her little brother. But also, we know these things are fake. We have Terry's mom. We have Glenn and Al's parents. We have the workmen have all just been demons in disguise. So the fact that this isn't really Terry is expected at this point. And so it's fine to just damage the hell out of him and he freaks out and he screams and he pulls back inside the bag that he came out of this is when they find the thunderbolt that was hidden there but something happens to the sister doesn't it isn't this when the sister dies yes they're hiding in the closet and where the gun was that that glenn was going to go get and and they have the thunderbolt in there as well which of course it's going to come back later when the workman comes crashing through the flimsy door to the closet, grabs Al and pulls her and basically takes her back to hell as well. The second human sacrifice. That's all that's needed to release the great demon, which comes out. The whole entire floor is opening up at this point and the real gate, which is going to release the big demon that we saw in the pictures, opens up in in their main foyer living area, whatever you want to call it, and out comes this demon, and Glenn's up on the top balcony and it's gigantic it has two arms, and then it has a bunch of small little T-Rex arms in other places it looks kind of like a granddaddy version of the mini demons that we've been seeing so far Yeah, it's very strange looking with the Mm -hmm. little arms. And some pretty smooth looking stop motion effects, too. It's obviously stop motion, but it's very smooth. They got a lot of frames of movement and it looks very natural, but it sees Glenn and it grabs him by the hand and lifts him up. And Glenn is panicking and he's freaking out and he doesn't want to die. And it just kind of sets him back down. When Glenn looks at his hand that was being held by the demon, there's an eyeball in it, and it's looking around. 
he ends up grabbing like what shattered glass from Al's mirror or something like that. And just like stabbing the eye in his own hand, which was a fake hand when he did that. Very obviously, you don't want a kid trying to stab into his own hand. But it's a very interesting sort of weird thing to happen randomly in the movie. It is very strange. Earlier in the film, Terry had explained how to get rid of it. Something about love and light. Yeah. Which we know, as we've seen so many horror films, that usually means that you want to sacrifice yourself. That's, you know, that's the ultimate sacrifice. That's what it takes. And that's essentially what happens here. He, yeah, uh, there, are two, there are two things we're talking about here, right? There's closing the gate and there's stopping the old gods from taking back the earth. Closing the gate is all that ceremonial stuff. Stopping the old gods is the love, light, purity, that thing. This Glenn is full of love and light, but he'll call you the F word. <laughs> this is when he says, take me instead. Don't you want another sacrifice? He stabs the eyeball. Mm-hmm. Um, ends up using the the rocket and explodes the guy. Yeah, and that's how he defeats the old god. Yeah, but because he also said, "I take me instead," I think that's why his friends got to come back to life. Yeah, well, I mean, the god like was gonna do that. It was gonna take him because he asked to be taken. I don't know if necessarily it was going to bring back the other two. But destroying the god with this symbol of love and light, which symbolizes his relationship with his sister, which even when it's starting to break apart as she gets older, they're trying to maintain that relationship. It's very sweet. Al and Terry come spilling out of the front closet. Angus also comes out of that same closet. So Angus is still alive, but that dog is very old and it will die soon. And this is when... Glenn puts his arms around them and he's like, you're my best buddies. Yeah, it's really <laughs> cheesy. <laughs> you're my best buddies. <laughs> yeah. And then we get some inspirational music and a blue cloudy sky. Right. It's and a real sappy ending. They say this on Red Letter Media, but I wrote it down as well. I kind of like this is a what happens now movie because what usually happens with kids movies especially is that when you defeat the great villain, everything goes back to normal. And while Al and Terry and Angus were all brought back, the house is still destroyed. And they do not address that at all. The parents don't come home at the end of the movie and go, what happened to the house? Like Kevin's older brother at the end of Home Alone. That doesn't happen. It just ends right there with them sitting on the porch and the smoking husk of the house behind them. And that's The Gate from 1987. Kelsey, lightning round. The part where he is singing the song, as awesome as it is that we get to watch this kid, this skinny, tiny, redheaded, glasses-wearing kid thrashing around his bedroom... He clearly knows all the words, and it's when he's singing them that he suddenly realizes what they're saying. Uh -huh. And it's like, if he knew all this stuff, why didn't he recognize it when he was looking at the geode and the yeah. markings and all that? Yeah, he just didn't put two and two together until he heard the song again, I guess. But you'd think, yeah, if he, if, like you say, he clearly knew it well. Why he wasn't earlier on in the movie going something even like... Why does this seem so familiar? 
or something like that. And then he realizes it when he actually hears the song. I would have been happier with that. Mm -hmm. I think one of the greatest lines in cinema happens in this movie after the Lee sisters call them a slur. Glenn says to them, suck my nose till my head caves in. (laughs) Eat your feet, dwarf. Suck my nose till my head caves in. Why don't you grow up? Drop dead. Up yours. Piss off. Why don't you shut up? (laughs) Which is pretty fucking awesome. Yeah, it's uh, the hatred that they have for each other, the sisters and the brother, is pretty great. There's some really funny conversations that they have. At one point, they show up and they've got, like, masks on and they're like, oh, it looks like it's an improvement, you know? Yeah. Shouldn't you join the circus and that kind of stuff? I like how when... Terry is telling him how to how to get rid of the demons. Glenn's like, isn't that a little bit insulting? And he's like, oh, it's supposed to be. We consecrate this ground, this world of light. We curse the abominations of darkness. We block the passage of evil. May the old devils depart. May they burn in the fires of their own damnation. May they freeze in the infinite cold and darkness of their own hideous creation. Isn't that kind of insulting? I guess it's supposed to be. I mean, we're trying to get rid of them. Maybe you should do it one more time. All right. I was going to ask, hey, whatever happened to those human-sized hands? Because at first I was like, are these little demons, are those the old gods? No wonder they were banished. They were shitty little little, th- little demon things, and if they're humans around, like, yeah, no wonder they didn't take over the Earth. But then, obviously, the old god reveals itself. But then I was wondering, okay, well, then what were the human-sized arms about? And then I realized, well, they do turn into things, so I guess it's not that bad. But I was kind of bummed out that they didn't bring those hands back in some way. That maybe after the workman burst the first time, maybe those hands could have reached out of the closet wall and grabbed Al and pulled her into the closet with Glenn still there. That would have been a little bit interesting. It seemed like a missed opportunity, almost like this random out of left field sort of thing, like the eye in his hand. When he got touched by the old god, he got the eye in his hand, and then he just stabbed the eye out of his hand. So it's like, okay, well, what was the point? Yeah. Similarly, like I, I think part of this is just like what weird shit can happen to these kids. Absolutely. And some of the weird shit is absolutely fantastic. Yes. But then some of it's like, wait, what was that about? <laughs> So, I mean, it was kind of a spray and pray approach. And for the most part, they were very successful, I think. I also think that there are some really sweet moments in this movie. We talk about the relationship between Al and Glenn, which is really good. But also the relationship between Glenn and his dad. I mentioned earlier about how his dad explained why he thinks Terry is acting that way. This is when Glenn tells him, oh, Terry told me about the workmen. And the dad's like, okay, we need to talk about Terry. And he treats him like an adult. He's like, hey, listen, you know what? His mom recently died. His dad's not around a lot. He doesn't know how to respond to this. And this is the way he's reacting to all this. He doesn't know what to do with those feelings. And so he's like, "I just you be aware of that. And when he told him that, I thought they were building up to the fact that Glenn wouldn't believe him. I thought this was going to cause like a a, a, a rift in their friendship. Oh, yeah, that cliche that, that, that always happens. He was going to be like, "I yeah. don't believe you. You're making it all up." Uh-huh. And he's, he would be like, "I'm going to prove it to you." You know, like I thought that was going to happen. They didn't do that at 
all. And I'm relieved. There was a little bit more hesitation on Glenn's part to believe Terry, but for the most part, he still totally believes Terry. Right. And it ends up being for a good cause because Terry's not making shit up at this point. Like when they're trying to close the gate the first time and there's that moment about hey, how that's rude, that's when Al comes home and she's like, what are you guys doing? They're like, oh, we're closing a gate to hell. Demons came out or whatever it is that they talk about. And then later, when first time Al sees something strange... She's like, wait, you guys were actually telling the truth? You weren't just making that up? Like, she immediately believes them, the first sign of evidence. Like, there's none of that shitty subplot where it's like, oh, all the weird shit happens when this one person isn't looking, so they never believe them. Like, no, they don't go there at all. But anyway, with the dad, the dad's like, hey, do you understand what I'm saying? And Glenn's like, I think so and you know he just he treats his own son with respect and is honest with him and doesn't try to sugarcoat things but tries his best to help his son understand like hey you know what your your buddy's in a lot of pain and it's really important that you're there for him these are kind of signs that you know maybe there's things he might want to talk about or he might need you to react in a certain way so be caring about your friend. Like, and it wasn't just like, I don't want you to see that Terry anymore. Like that really shitty cliche. And instead we have a good example of a good father, Mm -hmm. which we get the opposite with Terry's dad, who we never actually see in the movie. When he finds out that his sister got the rocket for them, there's this whole montage of them, like playing together and doing it. And I'm like, why are rockets exciting? Okay, we had this conversation. I set off rockets in my childhood. It's totally dope. <laughs> and Kelsey asked during the movie this question, and I was like, well, I never actually lit a match onto a fuse. I never did that. Which, by the way, setting off a rocket slash firework so close to where they are, and a person named Terry is there. It just reminds me, and of course, we're we're just past the 4th of July when we're recording this. Put it in reverse, Terry! <laughs> bag up, bag up, bag up, Terry! Put it in reverse, Terry! Put it in reverse! Oh, Lord! Lord, Jesus! Oh, Lord! Oh, Jesus! What the fuck? What you doing, Terry? Have you seen the video of the dog that grabbed one of those things that, that does multiple? Oh, he grabs yeah, it and he's running around yeah. and they're all going everywhere. <laughs> Screaming. <laughs> yes. yes, I have. It's really good. But the way I did those rockets is with the actual launching mechanism. It's battery powered and you hook up the fuse to that and it's like electric cables. It's wires and not a not an actual lit fuse. And when you turn the key and flip the switch, it sets it <laughs> off and you get to do a little countdown and you're in the park. And then it, <laughs> When it goes up, the cone bursts out. There's a smaller explosion when it reaches a certain height that just pops the cone out that you have a parachute attached to it. And it just uh, floats gently back down to Earth and you can launch it again. Hey, I had army guys with the with the parachute was my favorite thing in the world to go upstairs and watch it fly from the Uh the railing. I don't know. I never did rockets. It was never a thing for me or my brother. So I, I just don't, I, it's weird to me that kids think that's fun. Yeah. But during this montage, when they finally have it go, he's like, that's the best. 
<laughs> I swear that's how he says it too. That's the best. But that's ultimately how he launches it in the end too, because there's so much wind going on, he can't light the match. And then he doesn't have any batteries for the launching mechanism. So he takes them out of his flashlight. We also didn't mention another horrible thing that the girls say. We're having a summer party. And you're not invited, so don't get all retarded on us. Yes! <laughs> Jesus! <laughs> like, they're supposed to be villains? Yes. But, like, it was Glenn says 80s. it too. That was just a thing you yeah. did. Yeah, it was and the 80s. It makes watching movies that include it very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And it sucks for people who are like, you know, if you're mentally disabled or if you're gay, like, it can make those movies uncomfortable to watch. So we try to warn you whenever we have movies like that. There will be warnings on this episode. It's just, it's really interesting that we're so, like, we noticed that because I grew up. That, I mean, that yeah. was that was a thing. I didn't hear kids calling each other that. I heard adults call each other that. Right. I heard adults use it as jokes. Yeah. You know, like. I used to use the R word all the time. Oh, I, yeah. All the time. That was more of a 2000s thing. Yeah, it, it's, it, it, that, that was a little bit harder to get rid of, to be honest. It uh, still is for me. Yeah. I try not to. But the F word, it's just like, I mean, I grew up in a time when everybody said, oh, that's gay. Yeah. And that was just normal. Mm-hmm. Nobody ever batted an eye. Yeah, so when people say, like, oh, it was another time, it actually is. I think that's that's an excuse for otherwise acceptable media, right? Where you just go, hey, heads up, it has some shit that's uncomfortable. Just be aware of it, and if you don't want to watch it, that's totally fine. It's not an excuse for, like, old people who, who have the opportunity to change and never do. <laughs> well, they grew up in a different time. No, no, no. They've had plenty of time to change their behavior. It's not an excuse anymore. The movie is set in stone. Like, there's no changing it now. And it's unfortunate, but there's a reason why it's the way it is. People, not so much. There were some whale sounds when we first see the demons. Yeah. Whale sounds are a big thing. We've been hearing those a lot in It's in Jaws. Movies. We heard it in Jaws where they actually identified as whale sounds. And then it was also in, it represented the killer in one movie. What movie was it? It was oh, Freddy. It was Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2. Yeah, They use whale sounds in that. Yes. As sort of these weird sort of generic, it sounds like pipes and heat and like twisting. and But if you actually listen to it, it's just fucking whale song. We do hear the parents. We hear the father one more time. It's actually pretty close to after the father dissolves into goo. Once they get back inside, and before they do, one of the sisters sees, like, the, the demons or something, and mm-hmm. where she sees the gooey father, and she faints, and it's really funny. She does the whole, like, uh, cross eyes. <laughs> but so then their phone rings. Glenn answers it, and it's father. It's his father again. It says, "You've been bad," and the phone starts to melt. Yeah, and Glenn has been trying to argue we need to call our parents this entire time, and Al talks him out of it. And now it's too late because the phone's destroyed. All right, Kelsey, what do you think this movie got on Rotten Tomatoes? I'll give you a hint: it only has nine reviews, so it's going to be close to a multiple of eleven. It'll be like eleven, twenty-two, thirty-three, forty-four, fifty-five, or close to it. 66. 56. Out of those nine reviews, no consensus. 
Metacritic of 55, no cinema score. Do you think this movie is overrated or underrated? Certainly underrated. Absolutely underrated. But what would you give it? I'm give it an 80. Yeah, I think this deserves an 80. It's really good. I'm kind of bummed that I didn't watch this as a kid growing up. Oh my god, this movie would have terrified me <laughs> if I had seen this as a child. I would have loved it, but it would have just petrified me. Yeah, we talk about one of the movies we're going to watch next week. You had that same sort of feeling where you're like, I get why like adults at the time thought that this was funny. But as a child, it terrified you. We'll talk about that at the end of the episode when we talk about what movies we're watching next week. All right. Yeah, I'd give it an 82. I really, really enjoyed it. It's funny. The pace, it just keeps going. It never really slows down, which is wonderful. Yeah. Could the effects be improved? Sure. Could, could the story be a little bit more... Clear? Cohesive? Yeah. If if everything could kind of work together a little bit better, I think that would make it... I think that would improve it. But there's so many different things going on, and it's all very interesting to watch. And the kids are surprisingly good actors. I mean, look, they're not, you know, the best acting I've ever seen, but for kids, it's really impressive. Yeah, especially when they have to carry the entire movie. Yeah. At a certain point, early on, the parents go, and the only time you see adults is is when they're fake demon possession things for, like, a couple minutes max. They have to carry the rest of the movie. And you say the compositing is bad. When you showed it to me, I noticed it. But before you even mentioned it, I just thought they were just little claymation figures. I didn't see I didn't see it at all until you pointed it out to me. And then I was really impressed. Yeah, there's things like if it, there's one shot when Al goes outside and the kids inside are like, ah, oh, there's demons, right? We see them before she does. And you can see her legs and they're at her feet kind of dancing around. They did a brilliant thing to try to hide the composite of the two shots together along the grout line of the tile work on the floor on their patio outside. And it's really cool. But one of the actors who's in one of those suits, his foot crosses that line. So the tile on Al's side of the shot overlaps his foot. And you can see that. And you know the editor, like, was losing their shit. Yeah. They were, that. They were like, trying to figure out a way to fix it. Yeah. And they I'm shocked I had never heard of it. Yeah. That's shocking. Really, really shocked. The fact that I haven't seen it is also surprising, but the fact that I've never even heard of it is nuts. Kind of like Night of the Creeps. Like, I'm just like, yes. where has this movie been? Yeah, I, I feel like the 70s are where, like, my good ambient horror is. And the 80s, especially the second half of the 80s, is where my fun horror is. Like, we've been seeing a lot of movies like you say this movie the gate night of the creeps like a lot of movies in the late 80s that are just like they're really fun and they're silly and they're it, they're just a blast to watch and this was one of those movies i had a great time yeah so thank you very much tron for recommending this one really liked it a lot yeah really did all right before we move on to our next movie kelsey trivial pursuit horror edition in 1979's alien Mm-hmm. What is the designation of the planetoid upon which the Nostromo oh, finds fuck. the derelict spacecraft? <laughs> Did you say derelict? 
Why don't you derelict my balls? <laughs> is that not how you pronounce it? Derelict. Derelict is what they call it in Zoolander when they have their fashion line I about homeless you. people. I guess you can derelict my balls, Capitan. <laughs> I hate you so much. I can derelict my own balls. Thank you very much. <laughs> it's... Ah, oh, God, it's a letter in numbers. Is it like N173 or something like that? What is it? LV426. Fuck! <laughs> Fuck! God damn it. Yeah, that's... I could have told you the Nostromo. I don't... I don't remember that designation. Sorry. They go back to that planet. And they don't even go to the planet in Alien. They're coming back from it. They don't go to the planet until Aliens. Anyway, <laughs> you'll probably get this one. I'm using it more as a transition into our next film, which might be a hint. It may not. In what 2013 film does one of the killers wear a lamb mask? You're next. That is correct. Oh, because the guy who filmed it did your next Yes, the two. writer and director, who are two separate people, of our next movie also wrote and directed this one. And one of those masks is actually seen. We see it during the uh, costume party thing that they go to. And it became very trendy and wrestlers in the WWE who are trying to be like the backwater cult, the redneck cults people would wear the lamb masks and stuff like that. So yeah, it's iconic now and it wasn't really a thing until you're next. Uh, but we're going to watch their follow-up movie this time. 2014's the guest. That doesn't mean it's a sequel. Everybody. Yes. No, it's that the movie. Sounded like it's that. the movie they made after you're next. These two collaborators, writer Simon Barrett and director Adam Wingard, starring Dan Stevens, whoop whoop, Sheila Kelly and Maka Monroe, who is Jay from It Follows, by the way. She's fantastic. The movie's hard to find for some reason. You can buy it on Vudu. It used to be on Netflix. That's yeah, how we saw it, it the did. first time. Yeah. You can buy it on Vudu for $15. You can rent it for a little less. If you buy it on Vudu, it will show up in your iTunes if you have linked those two accounts, which is what I did. I just bought this movie because I, I love it. Should people watch this movie? Yes. Even if you got to pay 15 bucks for it? I would say yes. I think you should own this movie. It's pretty great. Yeah. It's really good. 15 sounds high. It, I mean, $15 for any movie sounds high. When a new movie comes out and you got to pay 30 bucks for it, I'm like, fuck that. I don't care that much for it. Like, I loved Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, and I bought it when it was $10 on sale on iTunes. Like, that's when I bought it. I don't think spending spending $15 on any movie sounds extravagant to me. Except for when you go out, because that's just kind of the price now. Yeah, uh-huh. But yeah, you should absolutely watch this movie, however you can manage to get your hands on it, uh, preferably supporting the, the film's creators. What is it about? A man comes to a home of a middle America small town family whose son died at war, as far as they know. And he says he was in his platoon and they offered to let him stay with them for a few days 
And a lot of shit happens. Yeah. He kind of makes it his mission to make their lives better, but then turns out he's not as innocent as he says he is. Not making it as better as he thought he was. Yeah, uh-huh. This movie is, I said in the last episode, we said a little bit earlier in this one, it takes a turn. It gradually kind of ramps up as time goes on and you start to learn more about who Dan Stevens' character is and what his values are. You even kind of start to root for him. And it just takes a left turn and it becomes a completely different style of movie. Which I think, in retrospect, is probably what they were trying to do with Year Next. But they were not nearly as successful. Oh, yeah. So in that episode of Review, that's literally what Simon Barrett because he's being interviewed throughout this episode. That's literally what he says. I mean, your next was fucked from its uh, ad campaign. Its ad campaign told you exactly what was going to happen. I don't know why they fucking did that. I mean, it doesn't. It didn't give away everything. But it gave away enough. I felt. Yeah, he does say it in that episode about how they kind of wanted to take something that you're used to seeing. A subgenre that you might already like or that they liked, but they thought maybe was hasn't been executed on very well. Like we think with movies like The Strangers, The Home Invasion genre for your next, and then give it a turn that makes it more interesting. You know, at that point in our career, I was really motivated by the sense of like trying to discover a subgenre that I liked in theory but didn't like in practice. Um, and then trying to do something with that. Obviously, with your next, it was uh, home invasion films. With this one, it was w- a war veteran coming home and suffering the consequences of PTSD and how they've changed and how they don't fit in the world anymore. This takes that and makes it probably a more interesting movie to watch, a more entertaining film to watch. Versus- and it is very entertaining. This movie is very funny. I wouldn't – personally, I wouldn't have called this a horror myself – the gate, perfect sense. It's demons coming after you. It's eyes popping up in your your hand. It's uh, it's you getting taken into hell. You know that's very obviously a horror movie. This very slowly becomes one, but it's you're still so rooting for him, and it's still so funny that I never think I, I could actually classify this as a horror. Yeah, I mean. It's a bit more of a thriller at the end, I would say. Yeah, Simon Barrett said that it is, like, marginally a horror movie. But he also said, and I wrote this down and I talked to you about it, too. We had a conversation about this, I swear. I don't care that I'm not the first one. I just want you to know I had this thought independently. And then it was later confirmed by the actual writer that it, he's basically Michael Myers told in reverse. Yes, Chris really did say that while we were watching him. Yeah, like if you take away his charm, make him silent and put on a mask, he's Michael Myers. He is the unkillable, seemingly supernatural machine. I completely understand that part of it. But instead of the terror of the mask and the silence, they let him talk and they give him charm. And that that's what makes him different. But he is he is in his threat. He is modeled after Michael Myers. I just like to imagine Michael Myers doing all the things that he does. Like being a charming guy. (laughs) I want to see Michael Myers show up at a party. Yeah. Silently. Smoke a little weed. Just like (laughs) (laughs) walk up and everybody's like, 
And he just takes somebody's joint, <laughs> puts it under the mask, and then gives it back. <laughs> I just would love that. It would be hilarious. Well, that's how we end up like the scene in Scary Movie, the what's up, and all those scenes where the ghost face killer in Scary Movie gets high with everyone and then his face changes. That's how you get shit like that. <laughs> or the leprechaun one, which I've never seen. A leprechaun in the hood. Duhood. In Duhood, yeah. Isn't it? Uh-huh. I think so. Maybe it might be. It might be the T H A hood. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, we've been going off a long ways on this movie and we haven't even uh, started the plot. So you can take our advice to see this movie or leave it. But when we get back, we will talk about 2014's The Guest. Anna, this is David. Very nice to meet you. David is a friend of your brother's. You know Caleb? Yes, ma'am. One of the things he asked was for me to check on you and your whole family here. I want you to show me who hit you yesterday. What are you going to do? Nothing bad. For the damages. David, do you want a party? Sure, that sounds nice. I called the army base that David's from. They told me he doesn't exist. David, I don't know what I would have done if you hadn't been here. Mrs. Peterson, it's no problem. Thank you, David. Who are you? I'm a friend of the family. All right, Kelsey, can you get us started? How does the guest begin? We open on a man running. We see some Halloween decorations, so we know it's Halloween time. We meet some of the family, the father, the mother, the son. The father is the man from Seven. Leland Orser. Uh, this is, it's literally the same thing that happened in Review. You're like, how do we know him? And I got it wrong. I was like, God, is he one of the people in Sex in the City? And I was totally wrong. And you're like, no, I don't I don't think so. I'm like, okay, well, he's, he's at least the friend in Taken <laughs> who gives Liam Neeson the job at that barbecue cookout poker night or whatever it is. And he's the dude with the bladed strap on in seven. And that's like literally the same thing that they identified in, in review. And I swear to God, that came from my brain. (laughs) That's Leland Orser. That's the father. The mother is Sheila Kelly. Who's done a lot of TV like lost and gossip girl and the good doctor. The brother is Brendan Meyer, who was in the OA, which Kelsey absolutely hated. <laughs> and the sister is Maka Monroe, who I said earlier is the main character, Jay, from It Follows. Yes, but we won't meet her right now. Mm-hmm. She is asleep because she works nights. We find out that their son died at war, and the mom is pretty shaken up about it. And everybody else is gone, and she gets a knock on the door. Mrs. Peterson? Yes? Can I, um, help you? My name is David. Mrs. Peterson, I, uh, I knew your son, Caleb. And it's the person that we saw running earlier. And it is... Dan Stevens. A goddamn handsome man. He's very, very handsome. Very handsome and built in this movie. So Yes, he is. She 
is like, hi, you know, who are you? And he was just like, well, I knew your son and he told me to come here to let you guys know that he loved you. That's his story. His story is that I was told to come here by your dying son to let each and every one of his family members know that he loves them. And then he will leave. That's that's his story. Mm-hmm. And she's like, well, how did you get here? And he's like, well, the bus took me to your town and then I ran. I needed the exercise. And she's just like, you ran all the way here? He's being a very respectful, you know, obviously he's from the military. Ma'am, everything is ma'am. Yep. He explains, I got discharged on Wednesday, I got hurt, I got shrapnel on my back, but I'm fine. And he even shows her, hey, here I am in a picture with your son. On your wall. This yes. is your picture that you have. To prove, uh-huh. this is really who I am. I knew your son. She kind of gets overwhelmed. Yeah, so she has to go into the laundry room where it's going to be loud and he can't hear her and she starts to sob. But that's the only thing she needs. Like, she's convinced at this point. She doesn't, it doesn't even occur to her that he might be lying. And he sees that she's been crying and he's like, I'm really sorry. I should have called first. Mm -hmm. I'll just go. And she's like, no, no, no. His sister would love to meet you. She's asleep right now. I think that it would mean a lot to each family member if they got to talk to you. Mm-hmm. Now, he is going, he, he claims he's going to spend the night at a, oh, I'll find a hotel or something like that. And she's like, no, I won't have any of that. You can have my son's old room. Caleb is the son's name, by the way. You can have Caleb's old room. I will not have you stay, staying in some strange motel. You know, it'll just be for tonight. But even just being in her son's room is too overwhelming, and she has to leave. Yeah. And then we get to see him just kind of sitting in there, just staring off into space. And this we is... were being told very early on there's something going on. Yeah, with this you should guy. be unsettled. We see him like this twice in the movie. One time coming up, I don't know, about midway through, where he just sits there, and when he's not specifically doing a task, he just sits there. <laughs> it's very unsettling. And you might also notice, I tried to pay attention to this throughout the whole movie, but eventually I just forgot. But he's not unblinking like <laughs> Alison Pill in Scott Pilgrim versus the World, where the drummer, where she just like doesn't blink practically the entire movie. He, it's not that he's unblinking, but on most of his close-ups, he tries to blink as little as possible. And so you're a little bit off put by the fact that he just has these eyes that that never deviate. It helps that he has very dreamy eyes. It does. <laughs> I mean, seriously, just like Google this man. Chris Dan did, Stevens. He is damn attractive. Chris did say, and I agree, but I don't feel that it's as awful as you do. Chris's response to this movie is the only reason anyone is nice to him is because of how good-looking he is. Yeah, this is what started the conversation about how he's just like Michael Myers, but, like, told in a different context. Uh, <laughs> if Michael Myers was pretty and didn't wear a mask and was charming and could talk to you, he'd be Dan Stevens in The Guest. Like, that's just how he is. He's this basically a machine, a killing machine. Right, but Unfeeling, I... unempathetic, killing machine. But I don't... I disagree with the idea 
that these people would not be kind and welcoming to him if he was No, they'd be kind and welcoming to him. The specifically, like, you're talking about the scenes we've seen so far with the mom, who's been the only one who's been interacting with him. She has a strong emotional investment in who this man is. So that makes sense. Everyone else in his life, though, not at all. And they try to make it seem, they try to make it seem like it's the cool stuff he does. And even (laughs) then, that's superficial. He can carry two kegs at the same time. Oh, my God. He must be a perfect mate. What? It's it, it. It is like that. If he was fat and ugly, nobody would be treating him the way that they treat him. <laughs> and we should probably clarify. We said the last episode that he promised to uh, slim down and get more muscular for this movie before before they would give him the role. And that is half true. He had already slimmed down from his role in Downton Abbey. And he was tired of being just the slubby, posh British guy. So he lost a lot of weight for one of his movies, A Walk Among the Tombstones, interestingly, another Liam Neeson movie, where he just got skinny. He went from schlubby to skinny, and he wasn't big enough for this movie, as in, like, he wasn't toned enough. And you can see him throughout the film... If you pay, like, really close attention to his figure, which isn't hard, or is? What's the joke there? Uh, Anyway, (laughs) uh, it changes throughout the movie because he is constantly working out and getting in shape the whole time before and during filming. So when they do the topless scenes, they did all of those last. And they are worth it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Again. He is a very attractive man. (laughs) And then when you realize he's British. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Interestingly, in Legion, there's a great line when he has multiple voices talking to himself. He's talking to himself in his head. Yeah. And and there's one version of him that's smart and that's explaining everything (laughs) to him. And it has a British accent. And it has his real British accent. Why do you have a British accent? (laughs) And and what does that version of him say? Because I'm the smarter one or something (laughs) something like like that. that. (laughs) I'm you, your rational mind. You're having a breakdown, a stress response. Your power is kicking in to save you. It created me. You did. (sighs) And you're British? Like I said, I'm your rational mind. He's also the beast from the live-action Beauty and the Beast remake, where Eh. you don't get to see him at all. Eh. You just get his British voice, Eh. like, vocoded. We sucked. (laughs) Yeah, it's not a good adaptation. Sorry, people that like that version. Anyway, that's a lot of talk about Dan Stevens. I think that's enough talk about Dan Stevens. (laughs) We'll probably talk about him a little bit more, too. We can also describe the music here. Yes, so the music is by Steve Moore. He has done a couple of Adam Wingard and Simon Barrett films. He did Your Next. He's the guy in the wolf mask at the party that I mentioned earlier. He, according to Simon Barrett, he composed the score for this movie on the same keyboard. There are facts out there that say the same model keyboard, but the writer, Simon Barrett, says, no, it's literally the same keyboard that John Carpenter composed Halloween 3 Season of the Witch on. How could it be? He tracked it down. But, like, for that particular film... 
Steve was actually using like the specific equipment because he's like tracked it down and bought it that like John Carpenter used to write the score to Halloween Three: Season of the Witch. Oh. Like, he's using the exact keyboards. Oh wow! Like this antique equipment. We really were like, and and I mean, Steve didn't do that for our film. We didn't give him nearly enough money to do that. <laughs> but he had done that on his own, and and Adam was kind of like, I want you to use like that's what I want you to use. So we were really trying to be very authentic. Season of the Witch, by the way, makes an appearance in this movie. The masks are in the Halloween decorations that they have. Are they? Yeah, for for the maze when we get to there. Hmm. But the soundtrack is fucking awesome. It's really good. Love it is exactly up our alley with this like horrified synthwave thing. It's very fucking trendy, especially in 2014, but we absolutely love this kind of stuff. It's done really well in this movie. Yes, and they have a song from Survive in this movie. What's Survive? Survive is the band that did the theme song for Stranger Things. Ah. And also, according to the writer watching this movie, is where the Duffer Brothers got the idea to use Survive to make the theme to Stranger Things. That makes perfect sense. When this came out, this was two years before Stranger Things came out? I think so. One or two years, yeah. And it was around that time that this the synth music was getting really popular. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking when we first watched Stranger Things, I was like, oh, it kind of makes me think of It Follows and uh, The Guest. Now. The guest does a really good job of incorporating that music. There's really only one scene that I was like, ah, tone it down a little bit. And that's at the very, very, very end. Yeah, there's like four different songs that play over the climax. Like it's a song, 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 song. Yeah, and I think it gets a little too in your face at that point. Mm -hmm. But otherwise, I thought they did a really good job of weaving it in. uh, Diegetically. Yeah. Like, yeah, like the music is actually in the movie. Mika Monroe's character listens to this music, which the closed captioning, by the way, calls rock. It's like, no. <laughs> and, and, and they, for the most part, they use it correctly. Whereas a movie like Tragedy Girls, which I appreciated their soundtrack, mm-hmm. it was way too loud with it. And I actually noticed that a lot when I was doing uh, the editing for that episode. Uh, because it was like there were a lot of scenes where I was like, you can barely hear what the people are saying. Yeah. And it should never be like that. Yeah. Ever. People say, I mean, there's a difference between a soundtrack and a score, right? The soundtrack are the licensed pieces of music, the songs, the ones that have lyrics, that sort of thing. The score is what the composer makes, and it's what plays underneath the scenes. Some people feel that you shouldn't notice the score. I disagree with that. We talk a lot about John Williams and how he's the aesthetic ideal of a composer, and everyone knows his scores. Everyone can hum something from John Williams. Fucking everyone, even if you don't know it, you can do it. And that belies the point of you shouldn't be able to recognize the score. Like, no, it's okay, but is it dominating? Is this scene now about the score and not about what's happening on the screen? That's the problem. Mm-hmm. But this movie great score only dips into that territory a handful of times manages to get these songs in there diegetically it's very good so thank you very much steve moore we get to learn more about these characters so the brother we find out is kind of a loser at school he's a smart kid he's quiet he never talks and he gets pushed into lockers that kind of thing 
we also get to learn about the father. The father is upset with his job right now because a guy who's much younger than him is getting a much better Position, promotion. The regional director, yeah. That'll pay more, etc. because he has a degree and the father does not. The father is really upset about that, and because of that, when he gets home and he sees this guy at his house, he's like, ah, what the fuck? Yeah, I wrote down, you're going to let a strange man sleep in the house with your teenage daughter? Like, that's really weird, and the father brings that up. Well, she's not a teenager anymore. She's 20. She's about yeah, to be 21. she's about to be 21, yeah. I wrote that before they introduced her, when she just invited him. But, yeah, he's like... You don't what even if he know has him. The You're PTSD just gonna... or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> and the mom goes, "What if our son came back with that? Would you want a family to just push him out into the world and say, "Fuck you, get out"? Even though he says he was friends with Caleb, he's in the photograph of Caleb's squad. You saw the photograph. You know what? He what if he has the PTSD or whatever it's called? Some of these guys come back with mental health problems. Laura, did you take that into account? What if Caleb had come back different? Did you take that into account? That is. <laughs> it's a really good argument. The problem with this argument is that it's always like, well, what if I was in that situation? I would want someone to help me out. Yes. The problem is, is that you know yourself and you know you're a good person and you know that you're not going to do anything bad to these people. Mm -hmm. you, you don't know about the person that you're helping. Yeah. And so it's like, I love that argument. I also hate that argument. Yeah, there's no reason why you can't arrange for him to stay someplace that's not in your home. Mm -hmm. And if she did that, none of this probably would have happened. If she had, like, called up Veterans Affairs or something like that to be like, hey, I have this man. He needs a place to stay. Can you take care of him? Like, they would have found out immediately, holy shit, that's the guy that went AWOL. Like, you know, <laughs> and this whole thing would have just been done. Or he because he probably would have been like, no, I'm good. Bye. And then left. So, anyway. Yeah. It probably would have been better for everyone involved. Yeah. <laughs> if he had just left. Uh -huh. So he's sitting there awkwardly because he knows the father doesn't want him there. And the father is an alcoholic and he starts drinking and the mother is making dinner. And he's sitting there with the brother and he's just like, looks like you got hit in the face. And he goes, oh, yeah, football hit me. And he goes, Yeah. That can happen. <laughs> yeah. We saw earlier the, the kid got shoved into a locker. And there's a lot of those lines in this movie. Like, just hysterical. And he does them so straight-faced. Yeah, that can happen. Yeah. Hmm. It's interesting. <laughs> like, it's very obvious he doesn't believe you, but he's giving you this, you know? <laughs> Meanwhile... The sister, who just got off work, is with her boyfriend, and her boyfriend we know from John Dies at the End. Yes, uh, Zeke. Chase Williamson. Yeah, and he you might also know him from Beyond the Gates, which is a really popular sort of like indie gimmicky horror movie that came out about 80s and 90s, I guess, VHS board games. Which is fun. He okay. enjoyed it. Uh, it wasn't as good as the premise had right. led us There was a lot of opportunity in that premise that it didn't capitalize on. John dies at the end probably most specifically. And if you're a gamer and you watch video game high school, he's in that. He plays Shane Pizza. <laughs> and he is a drug. Uh, drug. 
dealer. He, he is. He deals pot. <laughs> right, right, right. You know, I understand, but it's literally a drug. It's illegal. And he sells it. She tries to rationalize it. But again, his like, yeah, sure. You know, kind of <laughs> response is that like what you just described is dealing drugs. Yes. How do you think any drug dealer gets into dealing drugs? Yeah. They have it. They sell it to their friends. And then they sell it to strangers. Like, it's not a big leap. Yeah. He's a perfectly nice guy. He's just an idiot. He's just, all he wants to do is smoke weed. Uh-huh. And he, and they're sitting there and they're having fun. And, and spend then, time with her. Right. And, and, like, she's explaining what happened. And, and she's like, I'm kind of worried about this whole thing because... You know, my mom's been trying to move on, and I don't know that this is going to help her move on. And the boyfriend goes, yeah, your kid dies. It's hard. Yeah. <laughs> She's just like, yeah. Well, but he's <laughs> like, what? I mean, what he's saying is he's actually making an argument. That's a, probably one of the most profound things he says is like, I don't know. It seems like that would be normal. Like it's normal for her to be behaving this way. It's just that he's he's not articulate no, not in any way. Not at all. And it's very surface level. Uh-huh. He's not good at expressing himself. <laughs> and she's frustrated because she doesn't feel like she can really talk to him. Yeah. She comes home and she sees that he's sitting there with her brother helping him do his well, helping David, him David do his homework. Is. Yeah. We were David, just talking about Zeke. David sorry, is David is supposed to be helping the, the brother with his homework, but he's the soldier's just like, I don't understand what you're doing here. <laughs> Her father is drinking, and she's like, hey, can I have a beer? And he's like, in a month? Yeah. When you uh -huh. turn 21, you can have all the beer you want as long as you pay for it. Right, yeah. <laughs> By now, the father is very drunk, and he's telling the guy all about his problems, and this is when we find out that David's story is that he plans to go to Florida to become a construction worker. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't – I don't know how to do anything but work. Like, I can just probably get a construction job. And he's calling him sir. Mm-hmm. And the guy is supposed to be drunk. And he goes, uh, yeah, 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 you, you, you gotta call me Spencer. This whole sir thing, you, you gotta call me Spencer. You're not impose on our, and sir, you calling me sir now? You gotta stop with the sir, my name's Spencer. You gotta call me Spencer, for God's sakes. Okay. 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 And it sounds so much like way, the way he, he acts in Seven. Yeah, uh-huh. Very, like, kind of twitchy. Jittery, and yeah. jerky. He asked me if I was married. <laughs> and I, I could see he had a gun in his hand. Where was the girl? The what? What? Of course, in seven, he just fucks somebody to death. <laughs> so. But there's, but what I'm saying is, is that. At gunpoint. You can totally notice that's kind of his thing, his shtick. Yeah. Uh -huh. He has that whole jittery persona that he tries to get across. And that's what he does in seven. It's what he does in this. And God, in Saving Private Ryan, does he do that too? Oh, he does. He does the jitter. <laughs> I nearly broke both my arms trying to keep her level. And, and, when, and when we released, you know, I cut as hard as I could. So we're going to skip through the middle here because it's just him fixing their problems. Quote unquote. Fixing. Yes. As far as he's concerned. And I think genuinely he feels like he is helping them out. Yeah, I don't think that there's any part of the movie that shows him as being 
uncaring for these people. No. Which I think is super interesting. Yeah. I feel like there's a whole subplot going on that we never get to know about. Oh, that's interesting you say that. There is, actually. Ah, yes. There was an entire subplot that was taken out that's basically David's backstory. They had it in the movie. They did some test screenings, and they're like, ah, it's unnecessary. We don't need this stuff. We don't need to over-explain it. We don't need to over-exposit on this. Basically, what happened is he hurt his his back, his spine, in combat, And he continued to be in pain even after they fixed it. So he volunteered for this program that would turn off all the pain receptors in his body and allow him to control his adrenaline. So that would make all of this movie make sense. Well, it's not that it doesn't make sense now. It's just you don't need an explanation for this shit. It's okay. And it would just be a lot of exposition dump. Like, how do you get that out clearly without... And they already have some exposition dumping going on with the Major Carver character. He would have been even more exposition coming out of his mouth. And so he cannot feel. He can control his his adrenaline. He killed everyone who was in his group and escaped, and they thought, this is actually in the movie, they thought he was dead too. It was only later that they found out that he was still alive when Makeup Monroe's character calls in and is like, hey, can you tell me about this dude? Well, does it say why he killed the people? It's because a result of this is just he lost his ability to feel across the board. Like, he lost his emotional empathy as well. That would make it not make sense why he would care about these people. Because he's highly trained. And he's obsessive. And that's what he does. He he was originally selected for this program because he had strong empathy. That was one of the reasons they selected him to participate in this project. But it ended up taking that empathy away. And now he just has that memory, that training of helping people. And he has no idea how to do it properly. Which is why if he had real empathy, he wouldn't do things that would get people into more trouble or more potential harm. But that's exactly what he does. He thinks he's helping them because that's what he's supposed to do. And he will do anything to accomplish his mission. And it goes way overboard. So, what he does to help these people. First and foremost... He follows the people that were beating up on Luke, follows them to a bar where they're served drinks because they're on the football team, and uses that to his advantage to basically blackmail the bartender into letting him get away with what he's about to do, where he orders drinks, blowjob shots for the women in this group, these young teenage girls. Cosmopolitans for the guys. And cosmopolitans for the guys. And so they come over all upset, and he just sits there cool as a cucumber with Luke sitting across from him, drinking cherry Coke or something like that, (laughs) a Pepsi or something. Luke is drinking Coke. He is drinking... A fireball. A fireball, which is... Cinnamon whiskey and no, it's and it's Tabasco, Tabasco and it's like cinnamon schnapps or something and Tabasco, Tabasco. and he Luke tries it and he's like oh god yeah and then dude just downs it and he's like how do you do that and he's like ah oh, you get used to it well he can't feel any of that which we don't know because they don't tell us that in the yeah movie. but it's fine the point is is that he's tough and he can take it but these guys come over with the cosmos and he just sits there calm and cool because he's waiting for them to make the first move 
and they throw the Cosmo in his face. And then he kicks all of their asses. And Luke gets beat up in the process, which is how we're talking about how, like, yes, he thinks he's helping and he has these strong convictions to help. He just ends up getting the kid hurt more. Don't care. I love this scene. Oh, it's so great. It's amazing. And later on, he tells Luke, here, first of all, take my knife. I have a butterfly knife. Take it. They uses it to carve pumpkins with him at one point in the movie. Which Chris says is not right. Oh, no. You would not carve a pumpkin, that thick flesh of a pumpkin, with a fucking butterfly knife. <laughs> butterfly knives are for stabbing and slashing. They're not for cutting through thick pumpkin meat. It doesn't do that. You, you'd want something that's huge or serrated. Cool. Yeah, it looks cool. <laughs> anyway, he gives him this knife and he tries to impart his point of view onto Luke, and we get some insight into how he is. He says, Those kids at school, they were bigger than you. Yeah. And bring a knife to school. They take it off you and beat you up. You go around their houses at night and burn them down with their families inside. What's the worst they can do? Yeah. Okay. So obviously he's nuts, and Luke's like, whoa. But Luke's just like, Okay. Well, yeah, because number one, teaching him to be cool and tough and not take shit from anybody. And he's almost like, yeah, fine. Later on, when Luke knows what's going on, and he there's this great scene where he just straight up tells David, no, I know. I know exactly what's happening. You're killing people. Yeah. And you're on the run from the government. And I know this, and it's okay. And I don't care. And because that makes him- Because he thought him... they were friends. It's so yes. sad. No, it's- Well, and you know what? I think they definitely could have been. David was treating him like a good friend or like he was his older brother. But the problem is, is that David's unfeeling- he will accomplish his mission any way he has to. But it's pretty great, because when he's telling him, I know you're doing this, he goes from being calm, cool, and collected to becoming very angry. And then he says, but that's okay. And David's like, why? And he's like, because we're friends. And then David gets this little smile, and he's like, yeah, yeah, we are. You killed Dad's boss too, right? I, I don't care. I'm not going to say anything. Why not? Because we're friends. Right? Yeah. Of course we are. Yeah, but here's the thing. That makes Luke interesting. <laughs> then he asks him, did your sister, because at this point the sister found out, did your sister tell anybody? And Luke's like, oh yeah, just her friend or whatever. And he doesn't realize why David's asking, and that makes him an idiot. Yes. He's not an idiot for liking David and not caring that he killed people. He, it makes him interesting, maybe a edgy, slightly bad person. But this makes him an idiot. Yes. At one point, Luke just beats the shit out of a guy who's making fun of him, and he's going to get expelled because they have a zero tolerance and because David goes along with the mom to talk to the principal. He basically blackmails like him Carrie. into giving him, yeah. It's like in Carrie when when she brings in her dad and she's like, you're going to pay. And he's just like, would you like to talk about all the things that we could take your daughter to court for? Yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> Which is exactly what happens here. Yeah, he's like, wait, what did the other boy call Luke? And he called him the F word. And he's like, oh, so that makes this a hate crime. I didn't know he was gay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I like that that's his response. Yeah. 
<laughs> Wait a minute. I, I didn't know he was gay. Like, no, it doesn't matter. That Yeah, none of that matters. <laughs> it's a hate crime. Yeah, and now we know what kind of stuff you're allowing to go on in your school unchecked until finally Luke had to take it into his own hands. That's how bad things got. And we'll take this to court. Yeah, we're going to take this to court. And he ends up going from being expelled to a month of after-school detention, preparing for the Halloween party or whatever it is at the school house. So that's Luke's story. Then we have... The father. The father. We don't, we don't see a lot of this. We don't find out until the end of what happened there. Well, the father comes home and he's shaken up and he, he's going straight for a drink. And the mom's like, what's going on? And he's like, I need a drink. I'm having a drink. We find out that the dude he was complaining about before was found dead. Drug overdose. Of a drug overdose along with, was it his girlfriend or was it like his lover or something like that? Like his, as somebody he was having an affair with or whatever. In, in like a motel room or something. And they offered Spencer his position with his salary. So Spencer gets this thing, and he, but he's also like, hey, careful what you wish for. He realizes that the way he had to get it was really fucking shitty. Yeah. As much as he didn't like the guy, he didn't think he needed to die. Honestly, if you really break it down, this could easily just be a different interpretation of the monkey's paw. Yes. Or he is. Pod. Yes. He is the monkey's paw. I mean, that's what Wish Upon is, is the monkey's paw, but it's a really fucking bad one. Seriously, Wish Upon is so bad. It doesn't understand how monkey's paws work. <laughs> the twist needs to be related to the way that you get the thing that you wanted. It can't just be a random bad thing happens. So that's Spencer. Then there is Sheila Kelly, who plays Laura, the mom. He doesn't really do much for her. More than just, like, provide her closure for her son. And he's around, he can do things for her, he yeah. picks up her son so that she can go and do other things. Yeah. But yeah, it isn't, there isn't a lot for him to do for her. It's mainly like tasks, like honeydew tasks and providing m emotional closure, basically, for, for the loss of her son. He's almost like a replacement son for her. So then there's Anna, Make Monroe's character. Micah. Yes. Her name is Micah. I will forever, I think, call her Mika mm -hmm. because that's what it's spelled like. But if we're speaking another language, I guess it could be Micah. And apparently her name really is Micah. <laughs> I, that's, that's another thing. I know, I know too many guy Micahs. <laughs> and they don't spell their name that way. <laughs> I like it when they say Mika. Ugh, no, I don't like it at all. Hello, Mika. It's like Neve on Catfish. I know we mentioned catfish a lot. Neve. He thinks it should be Nev. No, it's not that it should be Nev. It's that that's how he spells it. That's not even how he spells his name. His name is spelled N-I-V. And it's pronounced Neve. <laughs> it's like Nivea or whatever is the longer version of his name. And he shortens it to Neve. And instead of N-I-V, because, oh, that might confuse people. <laughs> he says N-E-V. And that's not confusing. You, you could spell it however you want because you're already deviating from the way to spell your name. Just like fucking Micah Monroe, who made up that name in the second grade because she didn't like Dylan anymore <laughs> and asked her mom what other names she was going to call her, apparently. And so she's like, no, I like Micah. I want that. That's my new name now. Good for you, Micah. I love you. You need to be in more things. <laughs> I don't like your name. I like it. I liked it better when it was Maka. Anyway, 
He goes to a party with her and ingratiates himself among all of her friends, sleeps with her best friend, meets up with this guy, the best friend's older brother, who is like, hey, we support you. And there's this whole awkward scene where he's like, how how do you support us? You know, like, go America, go troops. Like, that's how we support you. And he's like... Not enough to join. Yeah. (laughs) And his dude's like really tense. He's like, I'm just fucking with you. (laughs) Uh, It's a great moment. But that guy, he's like, can you get me a gun? I want a gun. He's like, oh, what do you need a gun for? I like guns. Yeah. He goes out to meet this guy in the middle of the desert. (laughs) And the gun dealer who's with him is Ethan Embry. Looking tough. Ethan Embry got like, like, okay. I love Ethan Embry. Yes. He is he is in That Thing You Do. He's the bass player in That Thing You Do. He's in Can't Hardly Wait. Yes, and Empire <laughs> Records. Yes. He's so much of the 90s. And then All I he want for Christmas. And then he disappeared and he came back like a completely different person. He's like this tough guy now. He is the painter in Devil's Candy. Yeah, and he has like a beard and long stringy hair. And it's one of those movies where if you didn't know already going into the movie, you'd be surprised to find out that it was him. He's completely changed. I think it took me a while when we saw that to realize it was him. David's like, oh, great. I see all your stash. Uh, I want it. And he's like, you want just the gun? I know I want all of it. Oh, you want all of it? I mean, if you got the cash, he's like, no, I'm going to. Steal it from you. I'm going to kill you and steal it. Look, man, uh, yeah, if, if you brought money for all of them, I'll cut you a deal. You can take them all off my hands. No, I'm going to kill you. Hey, what the fuck, David? And the dude pulls a gun on him, and as soon as he pulls a gun on him, David kills him. Grabs the gun, shoots him right in the head, and then as the dude's running away, there's this fun moment where he needs to reload the revolver, which only had one bullet in it. He does, and then shoots him from way far off. And then he frames Zeke. He thinks Zeke's a bad influence on her and makes her upset. And she doesn't want to spend time with him. And so he goes to the extreme and gets him framed for double homicide. And so she's freaking out about it. She puts like all these puzzle pieces together and is like, no, it's it's David. She even calls the army to find out more about him. They say he's dead. Yeah, they call they call back and say he's dead because they're told to do that by Lance Reddick. Kelsey, where do we know Lance Reddick from? I don't know. He is Charon, I think is how you pronounce his name. He's like the gatekeeper in John Wick. He's the guy at the front desk that watches the dog oh, in John Wick 2. Yes. Yeah. But in like the ancient myth Charon's like the the gatekeeper or the boatmaster. I can't remember which one he is. Doesn't matter. That's John Wick. (laughs) But he ran this program of the super soldiers that David escaped from. And they're all fucked if he can't track him down and solve this problem. They show up and make us at work with her friend at the diner. Micah. Right. (laughs) Major Carver, Lance Reddick, and his men show up at their house, and the mom is outside doing laundry with David, who has a hamper of more 
laundry that he's carrying, like a basket of it. Uh, and he's gone and Lance Reddick shows up and is like, oh, is David such and such here? And she's like, what's going on? And then he comes out and there's the slow motion. And this is the turn. It's a slow kind of bubbling movie with pops of action up until this point. And then it makes this turn where it just goes wacky action over the top. He's now the Michael Myers killing machine. And there's going to be a lot of gunfire and lots of explosions and lots like it just takes a turn. Mm -hmm. And he kills almost everybody in this scene. Except for Major Carver. Including the mom. The mom. Because he basically tells her, I have to kill you. And she tries to yell out where he is and he kills her. Yeah. He's like, uh, he apologizes to her, and I think that's sort of as genuine as it possibly could be. And then he's like, I wish I could tell you what's going on, but there's just not enough time. And I think your son would understand what I have to do here. Yeah. That's what he says, <laughs> and then he kills her. And then on his way out, he, he shoots the tires of all the agent's cars, and he's driving away in the truck, and he sees Spencer, the dad, coming down the road the other way. And he's like, well, fuck, I got to kill him, too. Yeah, at this point, it's like, I have to kill anybody who knows I'm alive now. Yes. So he just full on... Rams into him head on, because he knows he can't feel pain. Again, this is extra stuff that we don't know, but that's why there's that joke of, there's just not enough time to tell you what's going on. What is happening, David? Who are those men? I really am sorry about this, Mrs. Peterson. I'm afraid I haven't been fully honest with you. What do you mean? It would take too long to explain. Spencer's still alive, and so he shoots him. He kills the best friend. He blows up the, the diner. diner. Yeah, and Major Carver's hot on his heels, but he can only go so fast with pop tires. And so he takes the car of somebody who's at the crash site where Spencer was shot, and he takes his car and goes after him. He manages to find Micah before David gets there. He shoots the friend, blows up the diner with grenades that he just kind of rolls in in sort of like a dancing maneuver. You know, a la Malcolm McDowell in A Clockwork Orange, like dancing around kind of thing through the through the chaos and violence and not feeling any of it. He goes off to follow her. He's going to go find Luke now. And Luke is at school, and Carver and Anna are after Luke because he's, we knew we knew before he's doing after school detention. And we get there, and this is a fun part. This is when we get, like, the maze shit. Apparently, they go to the coolest school in the world. Yes. That has this awesome maze set up for the dance. Now, why would the maze be on? I guess because they're testing it. I can let, let, let that go. And so we get this fantastic sequence of them going through the maze and all the stuff that's happening, like, each room is differently set up for different horror ideas. There's it's one where the, where the wall pops out at them, and it happens like two or three times where they get scared by this as they pass by it. And Major Carver is getting really upset, Lance Reddick. And he's like, God, God damn it. And then you hear the teacher who's in charge of all this stuff, who busted Luke and took his cell phone, which is why they couldn't just get a hold of Luke and tell him to get out of there. It's like, is somebody there? And Carver shouts out, military police, I'm here for Luke Peterson. How do I get through this maze? <laughs> <laughs> it's just this 
ridiculous line. And it's hilarious. <laughs> Who's in here? Military police. I'm here for Luke Peterson. How do I get through this maze? And he, he gives them the instructions. The right, left, left, right, right, left. And then, you know, yeah, then you're out. You got it? And he's like, yeah, I think I got it. <laughs> and they managed to get through the maze. And they're like, this is where I said, they're like three or four different songs during this maze scene that's going on. And they're bangers all. I love this music. But at a certain point, you're like, go back to the score. We don't need a soundtrack to go over three or four different songs in one scene, like just go back to the score. I mean, it is supposed to be the music. So earlier in the film, David had said he liked the music that Micah was listening to. And so she says, I'll make you a mixtape. And she does before she finds out who he is. Uh huh. After she finds out who he is, he finds it and says, oh, did you make this for me? And she's like, yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. And so he takes it. And so he's playing the music that she made for him. And I'm fine with that. I just wish it hadn't ramped up as much as it did. At one point, it's like all you can hear. Yeah, and it's like it's planned out just for a climactic moment or whatever, you know. But this scene is so great. It's so much fun to watch. Them hiding in the maze from him. Him coming after them. Him explaining, I really don't want to fucking do this, but I have to. Yeah. And eventually... He gets Micah. He knocks away Luke and gets Micah, Anna, and he's like gonna strangle her to death. And unfortunately, it doesn't look very real. There are only so many movies where strangling somebody looks real, and that's very dangerous. And Luke takes out the butterfly knife that David gave him and just stabs him in the back. And he gets him like twice. And David's gonna die finally. And it's so amazing. Oh, it's so good. So he's lying there and now he has the knife in his chest because he, again, he got him like twice. And David's lying down against like a haystack and he's looking at Luke and he's like, you did the right thing. <laughs> I don't blame you. And then he just gives like this really weak thumbs up. Yeah. He's like, don't I don't feel bad. Don't feel bad. <laughs> and then he dies. <laughs> yeah. And he dies. And you think that's the end. No, they the- so, somehow it's caught fire. Yeah. And so they, they get taken out. But they're sitting in the back of an ambulance being treated. And she sees one of the firemen come out in full garb with the oxygen mask and everything. But he's got a limp. And he's got a limp. And. She looks at him and he kind of looks back and you can tell it's David and with those smiling. eyes. And he's smiling at her. And he just and she, walks away. And she's like, oh, what the fuck? <laughs> and that's how the movie ends. What the fuck? What the fuck? It's great. It's so much fun. It's great. It's not a perfect movie. It's not a highbrow movie. It's funny. It's fun. It's badass. It takes a weird turn. And I love it. Yeah. Do you have lightning round stuff, Kelsey? There's just a lot of excellent lines. You don't have a lot of friends, do you? I have a lot of friends. Online. (laughs) Yeah. uh (laughs) Do you want to buy a drink for their fellas? Do I look like the kind of guy who wants to buy a drink for their fellas? And he's like, it would be the polite thing to do. 
<laughs> are you rich? Money is easy enough to get. And I love the look, <laughs> the look that he gives him. Like, what? Uh, Luke gives him so many good looks. There's a lot of, like, okay <laughs> sort of moments. <laughs> really, really good. In the maze, your next is written on the wall as a reference to their previous movie. They both kind of had ideas. I say them. It's Adam Wingard, the director, and Simon Barrett, the writer. Both had kind of separate ideas coming into this. Uh, about what they wanted to make, and they kind of overlapped in a very particular way. Simon Barrett was making a a script about just a soldier who was suffering from PTSD. And Adam Wingard wanted to tell a story about basically the $6 million man who goes Terminator on everybody. Like, he's literally been rebuilt as a robot after being injured, like RoboCop, I guess you could say, but with the soldier. And he goes nuts, and now he's this unstoppable killing machine like in Terminator. And so they they kind of overlapped in that way where, okay, well, what if instead of being an actual robot, he was experimented on, he does have PTSD, and that kind of changes his outlook on things, but he doesn't know how to process that. It's almost like this movie is how to improperly cope with post-traumatic stress, right? And nothing's over. Nothing's over. What are you talking about? Rambo. Wow. Have you ever seen Rambo? I have not. But Kevin and Bean. Oh, okay. <laughs> when what's his name he used to be on the show. He loved Ralph Garman. He loved to do that. Yeah. Nothing's over. <laughs> nothing's over. It's over, Jenny. It's over. Nothing is over! Nothing! You just don't turn it off! I never knew. I just figured it was that was what Rambo was. I think I have the whole Rambo series, he, like, if you want to watch it. people because of PTSD. The first movie is about a soldier coming home and not being welcome home. It's about the bad job we did of reacclimating soldiers after the Korean and Vietnam Wars. And they try to run him out of town because he's a vagrant and he's not having any of it. It's really the police department against this one soldier. Then it becomes like he's in Afghanistan helping out the Taliban. <laughs> it goes off the walls after First Blood. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, that's Rambo. Why are we talking? Okay, we're talking about PTSD and all that. So they kind of like merge those two stories together to make this one kind of a more silly and crazy and funny and horrific than Simon Barrett's original story about just a dude coming home with PTSD. Because again, Simon Barrett's like, I like making movies that are this very particular subgenre, but with a twist. Just like with your next home invasion, but with a twist. This is PTSD soldier coming home, but with a twist. Not to be disrespectful to anybody coming home with PTSD. I love when he's explaining after he's kicked the kids' asses inside the bar. Yeah. This is what happens when you serve minors. Just just chaos. Yeah, uh -huh. <laughs> Call the police and tell them the truth. Gang of high school kids came in here and demanded you serve them drinks. Well, you tried to ID them, but uh, they threatened to cause trouble. There was a fight. You didn't really get a good look at the other guys. Otherwise, I imagine you and this place could get into trouble for serving minors. I mean, this is what happens. Here. For the damages. 
I would like to point out that when they go to the party, Micah's mother forces her to invite him. And she goes, fine, you know, do you want to go to the party? And he's, he's like, that sounds nice. She goes, fine, uh, be ready by seven. Ah? Because the dad was in seven? Because seven is way too early for a party. They, it, they it only said early. that because he was in seven. I'm positive. Okay. Seven is just too early for a party. <laughs> All right. And yes, it's when he's getting ready for the party that we get the scene where he comes out of the shower. And she's like, oh. She's just like, holy shit. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, because she really starts to fall for him. And it's not until she overhears him talking to a plastic surgeon about how he needs a new face. Yes. That she's like, what's going on? And she tries to find out what's what's happening with him. Yeah, because she's down for it. I think all women would be. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. all straight women would be down for it. Uh, but but there's that scene where she's in her room getting ready and then it pans over outside and we see this is the second time we see him. He's just sitting in the room and staring at, I mean, the camera, but off into the middle distance very intensely and not doing anything like that's just what he does when he's not on a mission. That's how he spends his time. And Chris says that it's impossible for someone to carry two kegs by themselves oh unless you're like a huge like those kegs were empty chris believes they're empty yeah i could carry one keg by myself you would have to be a super soldier in order to carry two kegs pretty hot it's pretty hot (laughs) and then he knocks out the girl's ex-boyfriend which is pretty great too And then when they're having sex, at first she's, like, on top of him, and she's like, you don't seem to be responding. And he's like, oh, I will. And he grabs her, he scoops her up, and just pushes her down. It's Uh so hot. He's so hot! I guess a full keg is 160 pounds. So, he's lifting up, like, people in either hand. I guess that's not too crazy. You have to be very strong to do that. (laughs) But he's carrying 30-pound empty kegs over his shoulder, and, like, I could do that. <laughs> Damn it. Like me. Love me. <laughs> and, like, at one point, she's like, I can't smoke weed tonight because he's here. And he's like, why not? And he takes it. Yeah, he's just uh-huh. like, I can hand. And Zeke's into hand. it. He's like, yes, great. Now she can smoke with us. But, like, and just Micah's just like, holy shit. Uh-huh. <laughs> yes, everyone's very attractive to Dan Steven. <laughs> I do appreciate that there's a line in there where it says he's programmed to clean up all loose ends. He can't stop now, even if he wanted to. Right. He's programmed to, to protect his identity and the existence of the program. And if anything can compromise that, he needs to protect that. Even though he doesn't like the program, he got out in such a way that they had plausible deniability. But now that he's interacted with these civilians and they know about him and he needs to leave, he needs to kill them before he does. So there is a loose end. But he kind of gets, I mean, I guess maybe it's not a loose end because he gets out and everyone thinks he's dead. They find two dead bodies inside, but that's Major Carver and the teacher. Yes. So theoretically could be him. And he gets out just like with the fire at the facility, how he originally escaped. So now he doesn't have to kill Luke and Anna, whom he likes. He found another way to get out. 
I will guess that this movie has 76. Try 91. Nice. Boasting enough intelligence to bolster its darkly violent thrills, the guest offers another treat for genre fans from director Adam Wingard. Metacritic of 76, no cinema score. 76 on Metacritic? Yes. That's what I said. Oh, is that? Okay, yeah, no. That's that's the average review score on Metacritic. What would you give it? I really like this movie. I like it. Yeah. A whole hell of a lot. Like its skeleton is a little by the numbers, but what really makes this film is its imagination, its its humor. It's very clever. Yes. I'm going to give it an 89. Nice. I'm going to give it an 89. It is so enjoyable. Hilarious. Well shot. Great music. Yeah. Great colors. Great acting. Well written. Mm-hmm. That's not far off from what I was going to give it. I was going to give it an 87. 87. Yeah. yeah I mean, I, I really enjoyed it. It's very good. I think. And the second time through, it holds up. Yeah. This is actually, I think, my third time seeing it. But yeah, I really like it. It's mm-hmm. really good. So good on you, Adam Wingarden, Scott Simon Barrett. And thank you, Tron 1686. Yes. Thank you very much, Tron, for this entire episode. That ends The Guest from 2014 and The Gate from 1987, ending this week. Great week. What are we watching next week? It's another recommendation week. Awesome. Who recommended these movies we're going to watch? This time, our recommendation comes from James. James, what'd you recommend? James apparently wants us to watch Cannibalism. Next week is a cannibal week. Okay. We're going to be watching a film I have not seen since I was a child. I've never seen. Parents. Mm-hmm. And we're pairing that with a movie that I've wanted to see for quite some time it's now. It's been on our list, and we just, I mean, with the amount of movies that we watch every single year, we just never got around to watching it. Raw. Yeah. Excited for this one. I really, really, really want to see Raw. And I'm very curious about Parents, which stars Randy Quaid. Quaid. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Uh, So, yeah, thank you very much, James. We'll be doing your recommendations next week. And for those of you that don't follow us on Twitter, I already posted, we have a few more, plenty more recommendation weeks coming up throughout the year. But if you don't already have your recommendations in, it's not going to happen until next year. Yeah, we just got like an email this morning. Love you guys. And we will continue to put those in. But the rest of this year is is scheduled. Any more recommendations we get, don't expect any new ones to be done until next year. Thank you all very much for the recommendations. Thank you particularly to Tron for this week's and James for next week's. Until then, you can always reach us at podcemetery.com or our Twitter at podcemetery or email podcemetery at gmail.com. Don't forget to rate or review us in your podcatcher of choice. Five-star written reviews are the best way that you can help us there we also appreciate when you share us with your friends that's even better even better than that is listening to us in the gd first place thank you all very much we love each and every one of you until next time i've been chris i've been kelsey and this has been pod cemetery before we go kelsey any last words we accidentally summoned demons who used to rule the universe to come and take over the world haunted by
will be right here. Is that your E.T. impression? Elliot. (laughs) How's that not a good one? It's superb. It's perfect. Don't change. Please don't change. Okay. (laughs) You ready? You ready? You ready? It's Listener Recommendation Week on Pod Cemetery with 1987's The Guest. The Guest? That's backwards. It's listener... I was going to say listener appreciation. Fuck. We do appreciate our listeners. <laughs> it's listener recommend... It's a listener recommendation week. There's going to be a really kick-ass trailer for this movie, isn't there? You never know. Some of our favorite movies have the worst trailers. <laughs> oh, I just want, like, just an 80s voiceover thing, you know? <laughs> Where they... Find the the black the blip blip blip. You still haven't seen Evangelion. I was gonna put you through that. It's twenty six episodes of anime. You said you'd do it. You said you'd do it. <laughs> it's all philosophical and shit. I will. <laughs> Fly me to the moon and let me play <laughs> among the stars. <laughs> don't die. Please don't die. We gotta get married first. Then you can die and I'll make a death mask of your face. That's very weird out of context. <laughs> You had two days off, people. You couldn't have mowed during that time? You gotta do it on Saturday, because Saturday's mow day? Again, it's a really easy question. In fact, it might have already been asked, so you'll have to tell me. Uh Uh-huh. In 1970s, The Bird with the Crystal Plumage, protagonist Sam Dalmas is a struggling writer from what country? I feel like you might have asked me this already. I mean, you asked me the one where he witnesses the murder in front of the art gallery. Um, He's a struggling artist from America. Yeah. But you want to ask me a different question? Find a different one? We'll put that in the outtakes. Seriously, Bird, nobody's going to fuck you. I thought that'd get at least a little laugh. I said that out loud with my mouth. Do it again. God damn it. Ever since they came out with Fireball Whiskey and it became this huge fucking thing. Like, that's all you type in Fireball shot and that's all you get. Oh, well. Hold on. Something to the effect. No, I'm just going to say he says, and then I'll put the quote here of him saying, what can they do to you? You go to their house at night and burn them down with their family inside. Burn them alive. Yeah. Mega. Maika Monroe. What's her name? Micah. M-A-I? I would assume her name is Micah. That's a stupid way to spell Micah. It's not even her real name. Jesse's calling. You can answer. It's okay. I don't know how long that conversation's going to okay. be. It's not even her real fucking name. What is her name? Dylan Monroe Buckley. Her name is Dylan. 
Mm-hmm. It was probably first or second grade. I was asking my mom if there was any other name she was going to name me, and she said Micah was another one. And I was like, that's my name. I want that to be my name. And so she just because Dylan decided sucks. her name was Micah. That ends the gate. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs>